someday I'll probably put this stuff down in a book. From Foundation Capital, this is How to B2B a CEO, the show about how to scale your enterprise startup and how to grow from founder to CEO. I'm Ashur Garg, General Partner at Foundation Capital. My guest for this episode is Tian Zhou, founder and CEO of Zora, a software company that helps businesses manage their subscription-based services. Zora went public early this year, and in addition, Tian is also the author of Subscribe, a book about how to thrive in the subscription economy. In the first part of this conversation, Tian talks about the importance of great storytelling and how founders need to get out of their own head and tell their story from the perspective of their customers, the market, and frame the story in the context of the disruptive forces that are around them. Tian has this three-room framework that he has used for many years, both to tell his own story and to teach his people on how to tell the story. Thank you very much, Tien, for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, great to be here. I wanted to start by talking a little bit about your IPO story. I mean, it's a relatively recent IPO. What did it feel like? So it's an intense process, and it certainly starts. It's If you look at it, it's, it's a six-month process. I mean, it's a three-year process to get the company ready. But the last six months are the really six intense. months, we, yeah, we're at the board. We say go. We meet the bankers, and then it leads to this so-called two-week roadshow. Yep. Uh, where you're hitting city by city, right? And you're telling the story over and over again. It's an exhausting experience. And then to finally, you know, take that last leg of the flight, land in New York, right? Going into Wall Street, staying at the hotel. And it's just this thing that builds up to that moment, the morning of. Um, I actually I took my nine-year-old daughter as part of the process. Uh, the stock exchange president, Tom Farley, said, hey, you want her to ring the bell? She's like, sure. And so she walked up with us to the whole thing. She actually rang the bell like 10 seconds earlier. It's like, oh, the stock market's going to fall apart. It was pretty funny. And then what we did was really we brought the whole company as part of this process. And so during the roadshow, we actually had an internal Slack channel where my CFO, Tyler, and I, you know, there's certain things you can't really talk about, but we can Slack the food that we ate. We Slack pictures to the chat. Every morning we would, you know, shoot a photo of, of the city and have a little game of who can guess which city we were at first. It was a global celebration. We really had things going on across the world on Friday afternoon. But it was just a, an amazing experience. So I don't know if you remember this. I was at Trinity as an EIR, Trinity Ventures at the Can't time. present when, to you guys, yeah. Uh, when you presented. And I was sort of the, you know, the, the fly on the wall sort of watching the presentation. Yeah. What was that process like? Who else did you present to? What kind of feedback for the skeptics? What did the skeptics say? And did you walk away feeling like, oh, my God, I've got to prove them wrong? Or were you like, I really don't give a damn about them? I think it's, it tends to be pretty binary. And I'll say, look, even in the roadshow on the IPO, it tends to be binary, right? You, you either believe in it or you don't. But I think the key to that is to simplify your story down, right? And even today, the story we told in the Series A is the same story we tell today. And they are different proof points, but it's to say, look, the future is a subscription-based business model. You either believe it or you don't, right? And yes, it's been easier and easier to get folks to believe it. And we really built the only solution, and the Series A is we will build the solution, um, that helps companies thrive in the subscription economy. So that really, we haven't wavered on that in the details of exactly how that means as we learn more about it certainly has fleshed out. But it's the same bet, right? And so if you believe in that, then we become a no-brainer, right? Because we're a bet on the subscription economy. We're a bet that this is going to happen. And I would say throughout the years, if you didn't believe in the subscription economy, then we don't really make any sense. But if you do, we make sense. And then the investors really self-select in that process. 
I know a lot of your listeners are entrepreneurs looking at ideas. If I were to boil it down, there's lots of great ideas out there. But if you're trying to find a big idea to do something significant, you have to have a few things, right? You're betting on a discontinuity in the market that invalidates um, the past, right? The past incumbents, the past vendors, the past solutions. Uh, I was at Salesforce for nine years. I was one of the early employees there. And so in hindsight, you know, that bet is obvious now, right? It wasn't obvious back then. But there is this thing called the internet now, and that should fundamentally change how software is built and delivered and sold. And that invalidates the past incumbents, right? The client server vendors and so on and so forth. And so now that's interesting. That gives you an opportunity to build something from scratch. Yes. And so you're always looking for these things. And so for us, it was really understanding that it's less about the technology model. For us, it's about the business model, that there's this brand new business model called a subscription-based business model. And how do we know this is transformative? Because that's what we did at Salesforce, right? The Salesforce, certainly the new technology model around internet, SaaS, cloud computing was important. But we realized that went hand in hand with that was a different business model, right? To, to go to the customer and say, you, you know, this is not about you paying us millions of dollars up front. Just pay as you go, pay by the month, pay by the quarter, pay by the year. And by the way, in exchange, we're going to treat this as a service. We're going to take care of upgrades. We're going to take care of integrations. We're not going to break anything, right? We're going to give you a higher value of service than you can get if you were simply buying our product and taking over the asset. So our bet was to say, you know, if that subscription-based business model fundamentally disrupted the entire software sector, is that going to happen for other sectors? And, and that was the bet. And we looked at early examples of transportation. There was no Uber, but there was a Zipcar. We looked at early examples of entertainment, where Netflix wasn't the streaming powerhouse it was today, but there was a million people. But it was, a, subscri- yeah, it was, a, it was a subscription model. That's right. Yeah. There, was a, there was a few million people that had not bought a DVD in ages, right, because they simply gave Netflix 20 bucks a month and got access to every movie they wanted. And so we can see these early signs that, you know, there's nothing about the subscription-based business model, the disruptive power of it that was specific to the software sector. And so that's really, really interesting because we knew that the more the world shifted to this new model, the past incumbents, these ERP systems from Oracle and SAP, they just weren't going to be relevant, right? And so you're riding this disruptive thing that's going to take 5, 10, you know, probably more like 10, 15, 20 years to play out. And it gives you the time to build a new company that the old incumbents really can't go to. You had been part of a huge IPO even before sort of Zora, sort of a, as part of the Salesforce yeah. machine. What was it like to work with Mark Benioff? Uh, working with Mark was great. I mean, just we're here at Dreamforce this week recording this, and so just actually saw uh, Mark uh, yesterday at the Dreamforce conference in the Salesforce Tower. Look, it's a great opportunity to learn, and I mean, I could go on so much, but I'll share one story, and it's really the power of mentors and, and, and the power of really finding folks to work with. You know, I mean, we're known as a software as a service company that's, that's, you know, that's fairly decent at marketing, and that's not really my background. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm more of a product guy. Um, but Benioff one day in 2003 said, hey, come to my office, right? So, like, uh-oh, what's this about? And uh, it turns out he wanted me to be the first uh, CMO, uh, global CMO at Salesforce. And at first I was like, why would you want me to do that? Like, I'm, I'm busy building the product. Uh, don't you have somebody else you can go hire? He's like, no, 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 trust me, it's all going to go great. And uh, I want you to do this. And I was there in that role for about two and a half years. And it was just an amazing experience, really, to learn the craft of marketing from somebody that just knows it at this intuitive level. And it's a skill that certainly that we carry into this company, that I carry into this company. And it's been, a, I think, you know, a good contributor to our success. Looking back, why do you think he picked you to do that? I don't know that I appreciated this at the time. 
but I, I definitely do give folks career advice. I, I think at the end of the day, uh, a person like Mark, uh, what he found was, uh, it was not just me, it was me and other folks, George Who, Clarence Show, right, other guys, right? we just spent a lot of time trying to understand what this guy was trying to do. <laughs> I mean, we would make it happen. And so I, I think he appreciated the fact that he could give me fuzzy projects. That, you know, there was once something about Schwarzenegger, the, these crazy Dreamforce ideas. And, and we would just work it out. We would work it out and figure out a way to execute it. And that created a more harmonious environment, right? And so really understanding what the folks in your organization are trying to do and be the execution machine is how you deliver value inside of an organization. I think the reason I liked enterprise software is I tend to be a person that likes breaking things down, right? I mean, as a kid, I was probably a guy that would take a watch or something like that and take it apart. But I realized that I really like taking abstract concepts and breaking it down. So when you go into an organization, and I remember going to an insurance organization and really understanding, you know, what's a claim and what's a claim history and how does it all work, right? And then I'm at Consumer Reports the next day, I'm at Telco the next day, and I really enjoyed that. So at the end of the day, I'm a person that tends to break things down. And, and a I, classic I, problem solver. Yeah, or a synthesizer, right? You know, a systems type of thinker. And so people think I'm a marketer, but I'm a marketer just because I had a chance to break down Benioff's formula because I needed to. I needed to rebuild it in my mind so I can figure out what kind of organizations, what kind of programs to design, so on and so forth. And so uh, when it comes to leadership, I think that's what I've done, right? I've looked at this problem of building bigger and bigger organizations, and I try to break down what the heck is going on into a language that I can understand and, and in process, and then, uh, and then build systems around. When it comes to marketing, and if you really boil it down, and I, I think the advantage that I had is not having more of a classic marketing experience. I really had to break down right, what Mark was doing. And, and being more of a product guy, I mean, that's what I do. I try to break things down. And, and people ask about enterprise marketing, consumer marketing. There's definitely similarities and differences. The big similarity is at a macro level, marketing is about choices. It's, it's about understanding that people have choices and to help them navigate that choice. And so positioning is really, I think, the key, key skill. All right, do I do A or do I do B? Do I buy Siebel or do I buy Salesforce, right? Do I go to Pete's or do I go to Starbucks, all right? Do I buy this brand of car, do I buy, buy that? Do I walk or do I take the bus? And really taking a step back and understanding the buyer's decision set, choice set, and then finding a way that says, okay, well, look, if you look at it this way, if you lean towards needing this, you should go this direction. If you lean towards leaning that, you should go in that direction, right? And then helping them understand that and then says, well, look, yes, you could buy Siebel, but why would you do that, right? Because you want something that's easy, you want something that's low risk, you want something that's pay as you go, right? You, you don't want all these, these, these consultants to come in, right, mm -hmm. and own your lives, right? Really, really framing that choice is, is really, really important. And then to tell them the context of the story. And what we find, and it's even more important in today's social world than ever, is if you can express in the story that people can retell, right, then these things really, really start to propagate, right? So you gotta get out of your head. And so I formalized this. I formalized this into a structure that I call the three-room structure. The three-room structure. Yeah, because you know we basically try to think about it. Pretend there's three rooms in an art gallery, and you want to walk people through room one, room two, and room three. And, and actually, painting a physical structure helps people think about this because, you know, as product folks, we're so good at room three, which is this is what our product does. So what are each of these rooms? Maybe talk. So I'm going to work backwards. Right? Room three is what your product does. You know, as a product person, you spend all your time. Oh, this is why it's great. And this is why it's its features. And you know, room two is what you know you're taught as good product marketing, good product management is like, which is what does it do for your customer, 
right? And so what is the customer pain? Let's start there, right? Let's have the customer understand their pain before we get into the details of how our product really solves all those things. But there's a room one, and the room one is, is why does this thing even matter, right? And if, you know, room one, you're not in room one. The customer's not in room one. And so we look at it at the end of the day, you know, we knew that billing is really, really important. We knew that billing is really important because these customers are trying to price and package and grow in these subscription-based business models, and they can't do it. These are the pains they're feeling. But at a macro level, we tell the story of, look, the world's moving towards a subscription economy, right? And you can feel that in your personal lives. You're not and you buying can either join the bandwagon or not. You can either join the bandwagon or not. And that sets the macro level context of why. Why is it that companies are experiencing this? So we walk people through room one. This is the macro trend that's going on, right? The world's going social. The world's going mobile. The world's AI, whatever it happens to be. But here's the implication on your company, your industry. And then ultimately, you know, here's what our product does. And so Three Rooms creates a disciplined storytelling framework for companies to work this out. And do you still use it across the company? Oh, of course, yeah, it drives everything we do. We'll be right back. If Albert Einstein had worked in human resources instead of quantum physics, he would have said that hiring is hard. Not as hard as the general theory of relativity, but way harder than the special theory of relativity. I mean, come on. It would have been obvious to an HR professional as brilliant as Einstein that getting the best people is the difference between being a great company and a mediocre one. That's why Einstein would have loved Eightfold. Eightfold is the most effective way for companies to identify promising candidates, engage talent, reach diversity goals, and retain top performers. Businesses using Eightfold's talent intelligence platform have been able to achieve seven times higher candidate responses, 80% faster hiring cycles, and 60% lower cost to hire. That's why Eightfold would have been Einstein's favorite talent management tool, and that's why it should be yours too. Eightfold improves hiring. Visit eightfold.ai to learn more. In the upcoming section, Tian talks about one of the most challenging aspects of a startup for a founder, how to scale. He talks about what changes when you go from having a few people and no revenues to having tens of people and maybe a million or two in revenues to having hundreds of people and tens of millions of revenues. What I found most fascinating is how Tian brings a systems view to something that's inherently disorganized and chaotic, almost as if he's designing his organization the way he would a piece of code or a chip. Tell me a little bit about how you have evolved as a leader. You went from running, you had a very large job at Salesforce, you went then to managing a handful of people in a startup and now a very large company all over again. You look at, at large companies, you look at small companies, and I would boil it down to growth, right? So Salesforce.com, even at their size, they're growing at 25, 30%. And there's a difference between organizations that are growing at, call it 20, 25, 30, or hyper growth at 70, 80, 90 or above, and companies that are growing at, say, 5 or 6%. And what happens when you're a fast grower is you blow through these breakpoints, and they sneak up on you. And when you're growing at 3 to 5%, you know, they don't, these things don't sneak up on you, right? They take place over a long period of time. And so the natural uh, human ability to change is able to track that pace of growth. But when you're growing at 30%, 70%, 100%, it's hard. And so you have to, the difference then is when you're in these fast growth environments and startups tend to be, you have to see these breakpoints as they occur. And so once you do that, well, you start obsessing about, well, what the heck are the breakpoints, right? What are the things that break you? 
and we, we've, and I've personally come up with a few frameworks. Which um, is your favorite one? Well, so if you if you just look at organizations and look at span of control, right? And, and it doesn't matter if you're a hierarchical organization, matrix organization, eventually you have some span of control. Like how many things, you know, can you sort of keep track? And so if you just assume seven, right? So a manager has seven direct reports or a manager's managing seven teams, whatever it happens to be, right? If you have a matrix structure, then you do the math and a one-tiered organization is, or one level organization is one person, two levels is eight, three levels is 57, right? And then you tack on, I think seven times 49, you get number 400. So then what happens is you groove into a structure that makes sense. And then when you go beyond it, you're transforming, right? And once you see that, you can manage that transformation really, really well. So the simple example is if you're eight people, you know, as long as it's clear who the team lead is, right, usually the CEO, then the decision-making is pretty simple, right? But somewhere between 8 and 57, it seems to happen around 25, 30 folks usually, you start grooving into a third tier. Well, what the heck yep. does that mean? Well, when you're just eight people sitting around, you know, who cares what the roles are, right? You just, we're all jack-of-all-trades, we all chip in, we all just kind of help out. Yes, you have your specialty, I have my specialty, but I can cover for you, you can cover for me. When you're, you know, when you're getting close to 57 people, you start forming departments. Okay, look, you need to run support now. You need to run product management. You yep. don't need a lot of these, so you can combine engineering, product management. You combine sales and marketing. You can figure but out you how you want to combine. Structure. You need some structure. You need roughly five or six groups, if you will. So communication channels become harder, right? Because you have leaders of these groups that are trying to drive their things. There's, there's more opportunity for conflict, lack of coordination. You know, look, it's still relatively small size, so you do your weekly all hands, right? And you can manage to do that. There's another break point once you get past 57 folks, right? Somewhere around 100, 150, 200 folks, where you start grooving into a four-tier architecture, right? A four-tier system for a four-level organization. So you got to understand that and say, okay, well, how you communicate, how you make decisions, the type of leadership you need, uh, it all transforms. And then the role of the founder CEO transforms, right? Because when you're managing an organization as eight people, it's pretty clear. When you imagine it's 57, okay, you can still keep track of everything that's going on because you can know basically what people two levels down are doing. Once you're at four levels, your, your job changes, right? You have you no idea. You don't know. You don't know. Details, yeah. You don't know. And so you have to now, you know, your job, your direct reports are leaders now, right? They're leaders, managing managers, managing people. And then at some point, you're in your five, six, 700 employees, you start grooving into a five-tiered organization. And that's a whole new level and a whole new game, right? And so understanding these breakpoints and seeing it and then managing organizational change to these breakpoints is a big, big, big part of leadership in, uh, in these fast-growing startups. That makes a ton of sense. And, you know, one of the frameworks I use for CEOs that I work with is how much time do you spend in the business as against how much time do you spend on the business, yeah. which is actually architecting how the different pieces work together. Right. How do you think about that trade-off between just doing things that you're exceptionally good at and you can be in the business and make them happen, whether it's customers or the positioning for the company or anything else that's your personal passion versus really spending time on architecting the business and putting the put the right foundation for the next phase of growth. So two responses to that, I, it totally makes sense, totally makes sense. Uh, one danger in, in that framing is, uh, especially for founders, is, oh, I'm the product person, oh, I'm the engineering person, oh, I'm the salesperson, I'm going to spend a lot of my time in that part of the organization. You just got to be careful that if you, the more, the bigger the organization is, the more you personally spend a time in that organization, the weaker that part of the organization is going to be because you overcompensate for some of these things. And so your goal number one has to be to build up all parts of the organization. And so having a favorite part of your organization that you delve into can actually backfire. So you just got to be a little careful of that. The second thing you talk about in the business, uh, on the business, I, I think that totally makes sense. 
just to translate that into something tangible, what I suggest for folks is, okay, what are the things that you have to do that you have, you know, what are the meetings? What is your operating regular meetings that you have to do? That's in the business, if you will. How much of your calendar does that take? So take all your quarterly meetings, the board meetings, you know, whatever offsites you have, whatever one-on-one you meetings. have. Yeah, and add it all up. Add it all up in a, in a given month, quarter, you know, week, whatever happens to be. If that is like 70% of your time, then you have no time to work on the business, right? Your, your, your entire time is being sucked into that, right? And you add a few crises and now you're working, you know, in 80-hour weeks and you see a lot of founders really don't know how to manage that. And so taking that 70% of the time that you actually spent, these are like regular calendared meetings that you have to do, shrink it down, right? Can you get it down to 50%? Can you get it down to 30%? Can you get it down to 15%? Can you get it down to 10%? If you can get it down to 10%, that leaves you 90% of the time to work on the business, whatever you think is the most important thing is. Most founders I work with would love to do that. Many founders really hate large group meetings. They hate a consensus-driven decision-making style. But yet they spend most of their time in those meetings because that's sort of the way they think business should be run this, these days. Yeah. So how did you do that? How did you go from 70% of your time in large group meetings to 10%? So giving a concrete mechanism to solve that, right? So what meetings can you jettison? Now, if you're going to jettison a meeting and you're never going to go to that meeting again, well, then how do you know what's going on in that part of the business, right? That is a challenge that you've got to solve, right? And everybody has different ways of doing that. Some people want a magical dashboard that gives them all the information what's they need. What's your way? Uh, combination. I mean, I, I definitely the, the, having a strong operations team that gets you the information that you need. And then calling folks. So one thing I noticed whenever I got into a car uh, with Mark Benioff, back in the day is uh, you just watch the guy. He he's just starts calling people. <laughs> so he's in his car. He calls, uh, he calls Carl Schachter. He calls Brian Millen, right? He calls a European say, hey, what's going on with the business? And, and Mark had a great style. And, and I was on the receiving end of this. I get a late night email from him, you know, 8 p.m., 9 p.m. Hey, call me. All right, I call him. And he's like, so what's going on in the business? So I give him one thing. He said, okay, okay, that makes sense. What else is going on? And um, I give him a second thing. And he said, okay, that makes sense. What else is going on? And at that point, I, I'm starting to, you know, like I'm running out of stuff, right? And then, but like he's asking me, I feel obligated to say something. So who the heck knows what I said? There's one time where I was like, well, I think uh, we're not selling enough team edition. And I don't know where that came from. And the next morning right. I go in the office and all hell is breaking loose because Mark's on the war path in the sales organization saying, why aren't you selling team edition? And I was <laughs> like, well, let me just kind of keep quiet over here. And so there's, there's techniques that you develop, right? And it's, it's individual. You can certainly talk to other folks and, and, and get ideas. But this is the founder journey to, to figure out how to do so, these so things. So you learn Mark's interrogation style. Is that what you do with your team I, I do it once in a while. Once in a while. It's, uh, it can be highly effective. <laughs> I was reading an interview I think you did with the New York Times, and you talked about how you don't believe in one-on-ones much. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Well, I was looking at my calendar. And if you have eight direct reports at eight hours a week, that's like sucked up on one-on-ones. So that was one problem. So if I'm going to free up my time, this is a big chunk of time. The second thing I realized is the one-on-ones, and, and, and this is a size thing, right? And so, so this really happened when we were getting to be two, 300 employees. I realized that, they call this a four-tier organization. In a four-tier organization, I really needed to do a better job of weaving together my direct reports as a team, right? Because again, if you visualize a four-tier organization, there's individual contributors, there's managers, and there's leaders, and the leaders are reporting to me. And when I wasn't weaving them together as a team and aligning them, they're sending mixed signals down, right? And this is when you hear the employees start saying, you know, we have a bad culture, 
right? We don't really have a set of values. And, and what do they really mean by that is I'm being tasked to do a piece of work that I'm inspired by, but I've got dependencies on other parts of the organization yep. and they won't work with me. They won't work with me because they're getting a different direction. When I know I want to do something that's good for the company, but other parts of the organization refuse to work for me because they got a whole different perspective, that feels like a bad culture, right? And so, so when usually cultural issues are, are, are assigned, there's misalignment and miscommunication and, and lack of understanding of, of common priorities. In that context, I realized my one-on-ones were actually encouraging hub and spoke management versus team problem solving. When I got rid of the one-on-ones, it forced us to really bring it up as a team and then to talk about it as a team. Uh, the second thing I've realized is if I stepped in and solved it, then the team actually didn't buy into it. So I had to basically step back a little bit my role, let the team discuss these things, debate it, and come to a consensus, an alignment, if you will, about what the right thing to do is. Right? And now they're sending the same signals down the chain. So my role had to shift in a three-tiered organization. I could be more directing things in a four-tiered organization that turned out to be very dangerous. Right? And that was the example of, of understanding breakpoints in the organization where you have to change. You have to change your leadership style if you're going to evolve. You've clearly built a, a very sophisticated and over time, I, I'm sure, iterated on sort of a, an organizational and a business model that sort of works for the company. And, and you're now running a, a relatively large company. What advice would you have for founders that are just getting started? Uh, especially enterprise founders, most of them tend to be relatively technical. The positioning comment you made, I think, really resonated for me because most of them really struggle on how to position their company. They're so deep in their technology that the room one experience is very hard for them to even think about, let alone room two. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure that's one piece of it, but what else would you suggest to founders who are getting started? Well, we have a mental model of a climb, right? And we call it the climb to a billion. This is you know, something I, I just coined. The reason I call it a climb is you know, when you climb a mountain, most of us, right, unless you're these free scalers, you, know, you, don't, you don't scale up the side of half dome. You do switchbacks. Yes. Right? And so the switchback, I think, is a great metaphor because you're trying to identify these breakpoints in the company. You're trying to recognize it's almost an about face. And everything that you did to get yourself to that point might not work anymore. And so when you can identify these breakpoints, you can actually pause you know, as an organization and say, what are the ways that we have to change in order to take the next leg of the journey? All right? So organizations, as we hit, you know, as we transform between a three to four tiered organization, what are the, how do we change our communication style? How do we change our organizational structure? How do we change our decision-making matrix? How do we coordinate how we prioritize? And the system can get more and more sophisticated as you get bigger and bigger, right? But don't get overly sophisticated either, right? It's really understand when, when you're small and you're 30 people, you don't have to worry about those things, right? Worry about it when you really get to it. Same thing with the revenue model. And for a subscription-based business model, there's something convenient about the ones and threes. One million, three million, 10 million, 30 million. Mm -hmm where it just it sets a good point to pause and say, okay, look, we got to 30 million. What do we need to do to get to 100 million, right? And someday I'll probably put this stuff down in a book. But in that 30 to $100 million run, these are the things that you need to have figured out at 100 million that you didn't really need to think about at 30 million, right? So take, take the next you know, two to four years, right, as you're, as you're doing the 30 to 100 million journey to really work these things out. So example, so the classic case is, um, you get to 10 million, 30 million by selling to everybody, right? You sell, you know, you're just trying to figure this out. If I can interrupt, I want to go back to the earlier breakpoints and come yeah, back to the 10. So absolutely. if you think about the zero to one, that's 
that's just the hustle of founders finding product market fit. You need to find the first handful of customers yeah. that are early adopters because they yeah. have to believe in your vision as much as the actual product. That's right. But now you have a million in revenues and you're trying to go from one to three. Yeah. What would be the one or two things you would advise founders to do in the first, and that's really in the first one or two steps of their journey? Well, I was talking to a founder the other day, and you know, good product, SaaS product. We got this company that wants to go into Russia, and they have all these requirements, and uh, they're willing to give us a lot of money. Highly, highly tempted to do so, right? And I was like, look, if you weren't a venture-backed company, if you were trying to bootstrap your company, right, you got a second mortgage in the house, okay, that's one thing. But you're a venture-backed company, right, and, and you're going to do another round. Tell me what's going to get you to $10 million. And do you really need this Russian customer to get you to $10 million, right? Is it a core part of your strategy? Uh, no. Well, then why are you doing it? It's just a huge, huge distraction, right? And so you got to $1 million, great. What's the next journey? $3 million. Okay, um, how did you get to $1 million? Did you close one customer? Did you close 10? Did you close 50? What is the learning from that? When you're $3 million, how many customers are you going to have? Do you need to take your ASP up? It's like, okay, I got to $1 million with 50 customers. Probably not going to be at 150 customers with 3 million because what I do is a little too tough, right? I'm probably only going to double my customers. Well, you need to take your price point up, yep. right? And so to really see what the lead next leg of the journey is, $3 million, and what you have to change and what you have to stop doing because you tried a bunch of things, it's time to discard a few of these things and, and really focus on what's going to get you to three and what's going to get you the fastest to three. And once you're at three, look, we see companies that can go from three to 10 million to 10 million in a year. And other companies take three years. All right, well, what's the difference? Is because the $3 million company was able to get down to a repeatable formula, right? All you need to do is add a couple million dollars of sales and marketing spend, you hire a bunch of, you know, a few salespeople. Yep. But you and need that repeatability. Yeah, you need you, real clarity right. on what's repeatable and what's not repeatable. And if you do, you can light it up and get, get to 10 million really, really, really fast, right? And that's what's going to help you do the next round, right? So, so Absolutely. just really having clarity of that. And so just setting these milestones of one, three, 10, 30, 30. really, really help you focus. I want to dig into the culture point a little bit. You know, I sit in board meetings, especially with young companies, it's almost the obligatory question. So how's the team doing? What's the culture like? And most founders struggle with that question. Most founders have a very technical background. Very often they don't have the breadth of business experience you had before you started Zora. You know, they were working on some technical problem, had an insight, and they start a company. And they don't even know how to engage in this question of culture. They're like, I don't know what the culture of my company is. I don't know how to have that conversation. Yeah. What advice would you have for them and how do they get started? When we look at culture, how do you build an organization with culture? You, you wrestle with this problem a while and you realize that culture, culture is a manifestation. Culture emerges from something else. And culture emerges from people coming into an organization, right? And in our context, yes, it's a work organization. And they want something out of it. And if they get what they want, it feels good. But the subtle thing is what they want has to have dependencies across everybody else. And when you boil it down, the human spirit, there, there's something about connections with other people that bring out the best of who you are, right? That's the essence of being human. And so the work environment is one of the major, major places that, that happens. Yep. And so if you can bring yourself into an organization with a bunch of people and you feel like this collection of people are actually making you better, right? Letting you self-actualize and become the best of who you can be. Then it feels really, really good. So then the question of us as leaders is how do we make that 
happen, right? And so at the end of the day, what am I looking for? It's the same thing. I'm looking to tackle problems and to deal with people in a way that I feel like I'm growing the most. When I thought about doing this thing, I, you know, I was a salesforce, I was working for Mark, and I didn't want to quit. So I, I went to Mark, and I said, look, here's an idea, what do you think? If at that moment he said, look, you can't go on, you know, we got to do these things, I need you to do ABC, I probably would have stayed at Salesforce, right? But, but it was a moment, it was a good time, uh, so on and so forth. He was excited about the idea. And he said, you got to see it as a 10-year thing. He asked me what my age was. He added 10. He's like, can you visualize doing that, you know, when you're that old? And it took me back for a second to kind of think about that. But I said, yeah, no, I, I could see that. That's the mindset that you have to have. I mean, doing these startups is not easy. You talk about dark days. I mean, there's plenty of dark days, right? You know, the system is down. We had, a, we had a, our biggest customer quit and go to our competitor. I mean, I remember hearing that news and I had to sit down on the floor. There are moments where you feel like the company's falling apart, right? You know, you feel like, okay, the board seems like they're behind me, but there's a little bit of doubt that I'm sensing in their eyes and their voice. Yep. And you got to work your way through all those things, right? And, but you got to believe that that's the work, that's the journey, that's the growth. And, and you got to have a certain amount of grit to kind of see those things through. That uh, doesn't all mean it's going to work out at the end. But if you pick a big enough idea, I kind of go back to if you've picked something where there truly is a discontinuity, and this is the essence of Silicon Valley, there's some discontinuity that's going on that gives you an opportunity to do something really, really interesting because the existing solutions can't do it. The existing incumbents can't do it. Now you got runway, right? You got runway to work these things out. And then it's just a series of, I mean, there's days, there's months, quarters where it feels like I'm just lurching from one crisis to another. But that's how it is. That's how building a company is a messy process. I, I think Peter Fenton calls it the violence of, uh, <laughs> of a startup. Obviously not physical violence, but there's this idea that, that, that being it, it just feels like waves crashing against a bunch of rocks sometimes and, and you just got to work through it. That's it for this episode. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. How to B2B a CEO is brought to you by Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with 27 IPOs, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMobile, and Sunrise. I'm Arshu Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you are interested in growing from a technical founder into a business leader, drop me a line. Thanks, and see you next time.